0: Hello, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. Today I'm joined by Benjamin Jacobs, the man behind Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. Ben is one of the all-around great guys in podcasting, as well as one of podcasting's great thinkers. Anyone who's had the pleasure of interacting with Ben on social media will know that getting into a battle of wits with him is akin to getting involved in a land war in Asia when you're playing Risk. It's just a bad idea, and you probably won't win. So I was glad to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with him about his podcast, the Middle Ages, the early modern period, and what they can teach us about the modern world. I hope you enjoy it too. Benjamin Jacobs, welcome to The Exchange. I'm glad to be here. You sound it. <laughs> I love talking about me. Well, that's what we're going to do today. And I am actually especially glad uh, to have you on as a guest today because, well, uh, one, you don't live in China or Australia. So for the first <laughs> time, yeah, since I talked with, I think, Steve Guerra, I get to speak with someone in my own time zone, which is a great relief. It uh, sounds awesome. Uh, and the other reason I'm really glad to speak with you. Um, is I need to clear the air about a few things. Okay. Because you're freaking me out, man. I have to be honest. <laughs> now, just okay. to, just to, to let everybody know, you are essentially my doppelganger, and I think it's weird. <laughs> and for listeners, <laughs> you have to know that Ben and I have only known each other for a little over a year. Since that time, I've discovered that I'm 19 months older than you. Okay. We're both from central Jersey. Yep. We both relocated to New England. Mm-hmm. We married our wives 19 months apart. Oh, geez. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We each have a young daughter, and we live probably 30 minutes away from one another, and we literally shop at the same supermarket.
1: Yeah, and yet have never um, met.
0: And <laughs> have never met, and this is the first time we've spoken interactively. That's true. Um... And on top of that, all we started our history podcasts at pretty much the same time. And finally, to top it all off, both have wizard beards. Yes, that's true. So, Ben, what the fuck? <laughs> um,
1: I really don't know what to say. I've been following you around since birth, and I've uh, been just like copying your every move.
0: Well, you're doing a bang up job <laughs> but but seriously uh you've just you've got a great voice for podcasting and um i'm I'm sure you've heard that before. doesn't get old no compliments are always nice. <laughs> no one's actually ever said it to me.
1: I tell it to other people all the time <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. very good, yeah, so it's nice to get it from
0: you know have it confirmed by an outside source. Well, I'm glad to be your first. <laughs> so, putting putting that aside for a second, why did you decide podcasting was the right medium for your self expression?
1: Um, I tried everything else that came along, so why not? I'm definitely one of these people who starts a million projects, and um, most of them don't get finished or anything. Um, podcasting. I don't want to say it's the first one that's been a long-term project, but uh, it's certainly the one that I've most, I've been this committed to.
0: Um, Out of curiosity, how many books have you started? Um, like writing? Yeah. How many books have you started writing?
1: Well, I started one before I actually knew how to write. I was dictating it to my mother. <laughs> um, uh, probably two or three. i knew it uh but (laughs) you know it never got past the first chapter yeah i knew it i knew it (laughs) you know i I have had a uh a web comic uh a blog several blogs many 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 blogs over the years and yeah just i think podcasting hits a bunch of boxes that really satisfy my need for self-expression um in terms of... Uh, I love history. I, you know, for mm-hmm. me, history podcasting is the, the thing in particular. Um, I, there are other podcasts out there. As soon as I discovered history podcasting, I kind of stopped listening to them in all honesty. Um right <laughs> uh, History has just been an obsession for me for a really long time. So it's this, this topic that I'm deeply interested in and have no professional or personal outlet for uh because I made this this weirdly Kantian decision that um the the purpose of history study for me is to do something good for the world and, and use my my knowledge of history for something more concrete and so I got into urban planning instead of pursuing history as a career which made uh, me public strange. administration. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so Another a part of that was that I'd taken a bunch of history courses in college, and I'm very good at writing papers and stuff, but once I got to a certain academic level, um, the the requirements of academic history got a little bit laborious for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have pushed through it if I'd been supported properly, I guess, uh, but i I hit that point. Uh, at the same exact time that I was in a class with a professor who uh, I did not get along with. And so it just sort of, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back and pushed me in a different direction. At any rate, you know, so with history podcasting, it's this topic I like. I don't want to say that the the demands for research are less, because I, I do stand behind everything i say and i I do want to be academically rigorous and everything but you know it's not like i need to come up with footnotes and citations for everything it's you know yeah there's no peer review yeah um and then the the third thing is that um apart from you know history and urban planning my other big obsession not obsession but my, my other big interest throughout most of my life has been um Music and that sort of transitioned into enjoying when I was a kid enjoying like radio comedies like Fireside Theater, um, which is probably pretty obscure these days. But they were like a '60s era psychedelic comedy troupe, but radio <laughs> comedy troupe. Um, wow! And um, then in college, I ended up being like the co-president of my college's radio station which sounds impressive, but it was a real fly-by-night operation. We were pretty much just internet radio, so I was basically podcasting before that was a thing, uh, essentially, or just when it was on the cusp of a thing. Um, Hmm. Yeah, actually, I don't think the iPod had come out yet, (laughs) or it was only just coming out, because I remember the MP3 players I had at the time were, like, really ramshackle things that had no internal memory and you needed to trade out SD cards all the time, so... Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, so the, uh... So I was doing, uh, and, you know, there was a music show, but the thing I always enjoyed most was um, we, we, we were set up in, um, there was, like, a late night snack lounge at the school, and so it being a very small liberal arts college in the middle of a a really horribly rough neighborhood in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, (laughs) There was sort of nowhere else to go late at night except this this one (laughs) open thing on campus that you could get, you know, breadsticks and stuff. And so everyone would be there drunk and blazed. And I'd be, you know, we had like a couple dozen listeners online, and then we had a booth set up in this this space next to the snack bar and we had speakers blasting out and so that was my that was my thing i'd set up there uh from from midnight to 4 a.m on weekends (laughs) um and i was really only supposed to be there till 2 but i'd just (laughs) hang out and uh i'd play whatever i wanted to play and make fun of the drunk people and rant and rave and had a great time and so um and uh, and I had a band at the time, too. And so, basically, since college ended and the band broke up and I haven't been part of the radio station anymore, I haven't been able to, you know, perform, do any kind of audio stuff. Um, and when I started listening to history podcasts, like Duncan's History of Rome and everything, of course, um, mm-hmm. it, it was much more... Lo- it was not just... So I listened to History of Rome, and then I listened to History of Byzantium, and then I started hearing all the History history Podcast Network uh, collages, and as I listened to all the collages, I remember this point where I was just like, "Well, that guy's a fucking idiot, I can do that, and of course I'm not going to say who that <laughs> was, because, you know, I, I don't... Stick to
0: the code, man. Yeah, I
1: stick to the code, and you know, it, it was a moment of unkindness, but it was like, you know, I, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know you sit down in front of a microphone and you talk like there's not too much advanced uh, audio editing kung fu going on there and so it was a big uh, turning point and then I, I got in contact with uh, Benjamin Ashwell from uh, Talking History the Italian Unification podcast mm-hmm. and um, he sort of talked me through setting it up and um, had a, a rough first couple of episodes where I got my while well, I got my workflow going but sort of. Once I figured out how to do this and still be having fun, that's it's been really awesome.
0: <laughs> Pretty, well, there's there's no good first couple episodes yeah. for anybody considering podcasting. Yeah. They're going to suck. <laughs> yeah.
1: There's all this advice that like experienced podcasters post uh, on various places that I've read that's like, you know, just do ten episodes first, and it's like no it doesn't work (laughs) because then then those ten episodes first of all you get like discouraged halfway through because you're not getting any feedback and then because you're not getting any feedback those ten episodes they might as well be just one long first episode so (laughs) um, yeah your first first bunch of episodes are going to suck I I feel pretty happy that it was my first five episodes that were some were good, some were bad, uh, and then I sort of got over myself and figured out how to do what I needed to do. And hopefully by the time I hit the 10th episode, I really was going strong. I mean, that's not even talking about the screenplays. But
0: <laughs> oh god, the screenplays. You can cut that out. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> But now, with a smooth transition to Wittenberg <laughs> to Westphalia, that's the name of your podcast, uh, which is based, of course, on the journal you kept while you were on a journey of self discovery backpacking through Europe <laughs> in 2003 during a gap year right after high school, right? No. <laughs> uh, well, who? Wait, wait, who am I talking to then? Um,. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation, uh, which is the proper title, yes. uh, is uh, about the birth of the modern European state system. Pretty much, now, yeah. All right, now, based on the title, people might think that this was some sort of military history podcast that begins, say, in... 1517, when Luther pinned up the 95 Thesis in Wittenberg, mm-hmm. and maybe ends, say, around 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia. Uh, that formally ended the Thirty Years' War. But those people would be wrong, wouldn't they? They would be very wrong. <laughs> so, Ben, would you be so kind as to inform our gentle listeners, in your own words, about the scale and scope of your podcast?
1: Well, the podcast begins with the formation of the Earth. On uh... <laughs> i'm not quite that bad but the first 10 episodes are an exploration a deep exploration of the geology and geography of europe um and that that includes you know the tectonic plates and also includes like the cultural geography um so it's a pretty deep dive um some people probably find it dry but I try and keep it entertaining. Uh, I have fun doing it because I'm, I'm kind of a map guy. Uh, one of my hats I, that I wear as an urban planner is that I do make maps for a living. So I, I very much... I'm the kind of person who can blow several hours looking at Google Maps, just kind of clicking around. Um, but, yeah, so I, I really... Uh, I thought it was important to... Because... C- you know, a lot of people have a pretty loose grasp of geography, um, and I don't want to be, like, an elitist snob about that. It's just, for me, it's important, and for other people, it's not, and that's fine. But for me, a lot of the explanations for how things happen, uh, both, in like, on a grand scale in terms of why cultures form in certain ways, and then in sort of a micro scale, like maneuvers on a battlefield or whatever, you know, all these things are... Linked back to the geography, and so I wanted to set some baselines, and I got kind of carried away, <laughs> which is a running theme, I suppose. Um, so I, I, the first ten episodes or so are geography. Uh, actually, it's more than ten, but anyway. Um, the
0: walking tour is, I believe, you called it.
1: Yeah, the walking tour. So then after that, um, I've been trying to move from the stuff I'd been talking about in the walking tour to providing actual background for the Protestant Reformation. And in my research, I landed up on the story of this one fascinatingly awesome family uh, of Frankish nobles who are called the Gideshi, uh but they're, after sort of the founding father figure of the family, who was named uh, Guy, or Guy, um, who was a noble in Nantes in France... But then the family ended up moving due to European politics of the Carolingian Empire uh to Italy, where they set about i mean the 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 uh the branch of the family that was still up in the Breton Peninsula was still like massively like metal like really screwing things up they they ended up switching sides and allying with like the Vikings and the Breton tribesmen and like looting their own territory. But then another branch of the family moved down to Italy where they just like I can't even describe quickly without giving away stuff like the amount of like happy smile on the face backstabbing that they did to all the people around them um they, they would just walk into a situation where like two people were fighting and they'd go to both sides and be like, "Look, I'm totally on your side that other guy he's he's a jerk. And then he'd get like bribes from both of them and just walk away and let them kill each other. It it is, uh, it was, there's, uh, all sorts of fun stuff. They were fantastic, uh, self seeking operators in this weird border region that was, uh, Spoleto in, in central Italy, uh, sort of along the eastern Adriatic coast. And so I've been telling their story from, from their beginnings in Nantes they end up being the first people crowned as Holy Roman Emperor that isn't a member of Charlemagne's family, uh, which is kind of a big deal. And then uh, the next person after them to be crowned as Holy Roman Emperor is uh, Emperor Otto I of what is now like officially called the Holy Roman Empire. Um... Which is now located in Germany instead of France, <laughs> and all this stuff. So uh, by telling the story of the Gadeshi, I'm going to be able to tell the origins of the Holy Roman Empire Empire, which ends up being kind of important because you know as much as religions important in the Wars of the Protestant Reformation, a lot of it has to do with the the terminal breakup of the Holy Roman Empire. And so I needed to tell the story of the foundation of the Holy Roman Empire because, like, no one knows it in the United States. We just have no idea. There's, It's to the point where, like, if you go to the store and you buy a history of, um, of Charlemagne, like mm-hmm. Barnes & Noble's off the shelf, one of the popular history stuff, they'll get facts wrong about how, like, his empire fell apart. They'll just say, it fell apart after his death well it was actually like three generations after his death and then that a bunch of stuff happened and and they'll say but you know it set the found you know his empire fell apart after his death but it set the foundations for the holy roman empire but there's like so much that happens between a and b um the the empire moves geographically (laughs) to include territories that weren't part of the charlemagne's empire in the first place and um, it's got this entirely new constitution based on Saxon tribal traditions. What I've been trying to do is fill in gaps in what I consider to be common knowledge based on my experience of a better-than-average uh, public education. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they didn't teach anyone about it in my high school, then no one freaking knows about it in the U.S. It's sort of my assumption. Um <laughs>
0: but i I see what you're trying to do there and i mean correct common misconceptions fill in gaps and i think a part of what you're dealing with topically and what people traditionally viewed in sort of a grim manner is medieval europe yes um and, and you know you just think of that even that derogatory term the dark ages yeah you know the idea of a world lit only by fire and uh People deride it as backwards, a backwards time where the philosophical and artistic and architectural achievements of the Greco Roman world were lost, just completely lost. No one had an idea how to put a roof on their hut, <laughs> and it was replaced by superstition and religiosity and brutishness. Uh, it was a time of dislocation and instability. Until, of course, the Renaissance arrived and then the Enlightenment. And all of a sudden, civilization burst back into existence. Yeah. You know, so if you can, uh, could you speak to this attitude? How inaccurate is it? Or is it not really that wrong? Essentially, make your case for why we should study and understand the Dark Ages as not really being that dark.
1: So, central government fell apart. And that's not good. Um, The population of Europe declined massively. Certainly cultural achievements were were pretty seriously lost and the goods and services that the government provided uh, ceased to function and the people who relied on them for life either died or starved or started stealing stuff from their neighbors. But there was a Roman identity that survived deep into the Middle Ages. And the Roman legal tradition undergirded pretty much everything that was going on in the Middle Ages. There were other additions, and they lost a lot, and they forgot a lot because you know, people were illiterate. But there was a basic Roman identity that... Um, I'm working on an episode right now, so I'm going to bring in a, a chunk of this. Everyone was eating bread. Loaves of fluffy bread. <laughs> you know, depending on the quality of the grain. But people, like needed people needed a baker in their village or else they wouldn't know what to eat <laughs> <laughs> and you know if you go not that far just like a thousand miles or so in any direction from you know italy or france or whatever you'll find all these cultures that they don't have centralized baking ovens in their villages like they certainly have villages but there's no like centralized baking apparatus Um, People just make flatbreads or whatever, and it was just the survival from their Roman past that was just so deeply ingrained in the culture that people just, they needed bread. (laughs) They didn't know how to live without it. Uh, They did, but it was like, that's not how you wanted to live. So there's just all these elements of Roman culture that survived, and... I think it's important for us to study the Middle Ages because collapses come and go. And without sounding too alarmist, there's going to be others. There's going to be other. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. collapses of civilization and it's to me it's interesting to look at the middle ages and say you know it was really bad we shouldn't like run towards a collapse of civilization with our arms spread wide but um it's also interesting how how much survives and in ways that people no matter your like ideological persuasion on these things like wouldn't expect or wouldn't you know social order survived it just became very defensive and localized and the rich people came out on top but as like neighborhood strongmen the the point is that things are never you know if golden ages are never as awesome as they're portrayed Dark ages are never as bad as they're portrayed. Because I mean, most of the people, most of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves and poor people who were starving to death, even at the height of the empire. So for them, the Middle Ages was probably only different in the sense of who was forcing them to starve to death, <laughs> uh, right. to a certain extent. Uh, I'm exaggerating, and for the the urban poor, it was uh, there was probably a lot of dislocation,
0: but What positive attribute of civilization survived during the Middle Ages?
1: Well, it's weird. It's like we we think these days of how, like, well, people who study history think of how science and theology and biology and physics and all this stuff all sort of came out of philosophy. And, you know, back in the Roman Empire, there were certainly, like, disciplines of philosophy that were studying different things. What's weird is how in the Middle Ages, a lot of that stuff survived. It just sort of retreated back into philosophy and into theology and sort of everything got simpler and a lot of stuff was lost, but sort of the basic concepts and ideas went, it was almost like they went into hibernation within institutions like the church Mm-hmm. um and the the church libraries that were established by the the Carolingian um empire so that when things started to come back in from the arab world and and constantinople it, to a certain extent everyone was sort of culturally prepared to accept it it's sort of like one of those bacteria that have like this little part of themselves that's that they can retreat back into when times are bad, and they just become a spore, <laughs> like just the, there's like a little hard thing around their genetic material, and um, and then when conditions get better, they they start reproducing like crazy.
0: So essentially, people weren't broken by it.
1: No, they just like, sort of they like I hear I read like or hear synopses of like apocalyptic novels that people write these days where people forget you know what guns were (laughs) or whatever and everyone's running around with broadswords um and it's i listen to that and i'm like are you kidding in a dark age like all all that people would do all day is produce guns like (laughs) uh or or whatever like people wouldn't forget that technology existed they would just forget the specifics of how to make it work and they're just be like puttering around in people's brains that you could have computers until things got settled well enough that they could actually go back and tinker and figure out how to do it. Like, people don't lose these broader concepts.
0: Yeah. Well, like, look at, um, so look at Florence. I know that I'm taking this out of the Middle Ages and going to the Renaissance was, oh, what a hypocrite (laughs) of mine. Um, but, like, Brunicelli's dome. Sure. He obviously had looked around Italy and saw that there were domes, and therefore he knew that domes were possible. Right. So just because how the Pantheon was made yeah. was lost specifically didn't mean that it couldn't be rediscovered. Yeah, and that's essentially your point.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, we we lost the specifics, but we've and it's there's a tendency to look down on like architecture is a great example. Um, I think medieval architecture is amazing, <laughs> and the more we learn about the Roman Empire and the, the Middle Ages, the less awesome the Roman Empire seems, and the more we have to respect the Middle Ages and their architectural achievements, because, like, you know, people would say for years, oh, the people in the Middle Ages, they didn't have any kind of architectural training they didn't have any understanding of the mathematics that's why all these cathedrals fell down repeatedly well they didn't have any kind of solid training in the roman empire either they just overbuilt everything and the the achievements in the middle ages with gothic architecture is just that they they trimmed everything back to the bone like they're the flying buttresses and everything in the, in the big cathedrals are about as little as you can support those structures with as, as, you know, possible without getting into, like, rebar and modern
0: concrete pouring techniques and stuff. I don't know, man. I'm an arch guy myself, but, uh, you know, you can have your buttresses. Well, it's not about the
1: buttresses. It's about going inside and seeing the pointed arches and everything, and it's just this delicate tracery and webbing that makes it look like, you know, there's nothing there, but really, you've got tons and tons and tons of material above you um i find that stuff uh amazing and, and that actually and that all ties into sort of the medieval aesthetic of you know if you want to talk about how things were different in the middle ages versus the roman empire the the dominion of christianity and then the direction it took um into becoming like a complete denial of of worldly things and so there, like if you look at medieval art um to a certain extent there's a lack of skill but there's also choices that are made in in some of the better examples where you can see like people have the ability to still render very realistic paintings of individuals faces but then they draw them out of all proportion and scale not because they don't know how to draw proportion and scale, but because they're choosing not to because they're drawing religious figures and they're angels and they float above the ground and <laughs> earthly concerns don't bother them. And you go to the cathedrals and it's, you know, this delicate stonework um, done without the advantages of Roman mortar, <laughs> one might add, um, that looks like there's nothing there. Uh it, It's amazing to me.
0: Now, obviously, Wittenberg to Westphalia straddles more than just one age. So now, if you would, why don't you talk a little bit about the period that we tra- your podcast will eventually transition towards, which is the modern period. Sure. Uh, what what do you want to be able to tell people about that, and what differentiates it from the Middle Ages? What's the the demarcation?
1: There's so many ways to demarcate the modern from the medieval uh and that's sort of why the early modern period now exists because people started looking about it and saying well it was this oh wait that started way earlier okay now it was this oh no we got to push it back again and there's people now who are saying that the modern age started with the hundred years war earlier um (laughs) which is a little ridiculous but um to me the big thing because i'm i'm interested in wider social aspects uh but primarily i'm very interested in in military history i'm very interested in politics and i'm interested in the wider social implications of those things and how the wider society influenced those things you know so vice versa sort of um and all that stuff kind of gets tied into the rise of the state system basically uh, that's the one thing that sort of brings all these different threads together and really differentiates, like, traditional societies in general from the modern world, um, whether it be, you know, some some guy, you know, farming on the banks of the Nile in ancient Egypt or, uh, you know, a peasant in medieval Europe, uh, there's a lot of things that these lifestyles have in common and uh, there's a tendency to fall into uh, a feudal social organization and the the real um, innovation of the modern world was to move into a centralized bureaucratic system in a lot of different states simultaneously that um, somehow is very different from anything that had gone before. In some ways, it's still universalist in its ideology. Um, you know, we have human rights and these things like that that we think apply to everyone. But at the same time, you know, we don't think that the government of Portugal should be ruling everything um, because God yes. said so or whatever. Um, we're we're we we come to a very different place where the government is in some ways much more limited than it was in the past. But in terms of its impact on people's lives, its capacities are much higher. And getting to that point from the Middle Ages is sort of what I'm really interested in talking about. And part of why I'm interested in talking about it is just... yeah, I, Over the years, I've read a lot of military strategy and, and stuff, and uh, political stuff, and you'll, you'll get to these events where someone does X and then, you know, the obvious counter to X is Y, but then someone does B. And it's just completely the wrong thing to do. And you you ask, why did they do it? And there's all these different theories. But at the end of the day, the big theory, the one that sort of looms over everything in the Middle Ages and before, is that just governments were so massively incapable of dealing with things. (laughs) You know, governments were bob and all of his friends (laughs) and that's the king in the court right there (laughs) yeah exactly you know the the it up until absurdly recently that the treasury of england was kept under the king's mattress (laughs) and like the 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 um i forget what his exact title was but the the guy of the royal bedchamber he was the treasurer (laughs) because he had access to the mattress that all the money was kept under
0: (laughs) first lord of the x checker yeah so
1: um the the process by which these you know political entities move from being you know bill and his friends to being something that persists regardless of who the individuals are um that can function in some way representative of the people involved you know not necessarily in terms of a democracy but like a, of nation a nation yeah yeah um so that that's sort of cuz by the end of the story we're not going to see any democracies we we're going to have one one maybe two republics maybe three but um no no democracies at all but we're going to see a bunch of modern states they're going to be absolute monarchies And that's sort of the first iteration of the modern state system. And But these monarchies are going to be able to do things like do things for the peasants and go over the heads of all the the feudal magnates. And it's going to be like completely new, completely new thing. Uh, And, you know, raise mass armies based on conscripting the peasantry and then You know the nobility and the gentry has to scramble to find a way to justify their existence in this new world. So, that's the stuff that's interesting to me.
0: When do you know you'll be done? (laughs)
1: Um, alright, um, I have a pretty specific ending in mind. Uh, not super specific, but, um, when I get to the end of the English Civil War, that's pretty much the end, but there's gonna be a fairly long epilogue where I talk about how the English Civil War impacted the American colonies um, and how the rise of the European state system and all the stuff that we had been talking about um, in the at that point the previous few months to a year uh, sort of coincided with the rise of colonization and uh, the impact that events in Europe were having on the rest of the world and try and find a way to tie it up with a neat bow to uh, talk about how there's the situation that's probably been very good for people in Europe um, and people of European descent in North America that has had objectively terrible consequences for people who don't fall into that category. Uh, And so there's this sort of like looming ethical question mark On everything that I'm going to be talking about, this whole progressive narrative of the rise of the state system and the centralization of the state, and one of the ramifications of that is colonization and genocide across the planet in various forms.
0: And then you're going to drop the mic and say peace out? Yeah, pretty much. Nice.
1: I'll probably move on to another project at that point. At that point, this will be like ten years in the future
0: and I'll know nothing else. (laughs) I think it's funny that you kind of you kind of set the stage for colonization in America. Um, in your opinion, now I've heard a lot of people say that the French Revolution is the event that marks the birth of the modern world. Do you subscribe to that? As a
1: convenience, uh, it's the thing that I use to mark the difference between early modern and modern modern, um, at least from a, a dating standpoint. Um, Any hard demarcation in history is thoroughly arbitrary, (laughs) but that's a very convenient one, and in particular because all the threads that had been building through the early modern period get bound up in a nice neat bow by, by the time Napoleon goes away. So yeah, like, you go from centralized absolute monarchies that still have these holdover... Um, aristocracies uh, to Napoleon, who's recruiting mass armies, the likes of which wouldn't be seen again till World War one um, and you know, full- on conscription and state nationalization of industries in order to bring in foodstuffs to feed the army and
0: and everything so but also a major proponent of a meritocracy.
1: Yes, so yeah, I mean, good and bad like i'm not gonna say that napoleon's awesome or anything but um by the time he was done um europe was fully modern even despite efforts to push it back you had you know at that point the industrial revolution was pretty much getting started and the scientific revolution was well underway Uh, you couldn't look at the world post-napoleon and mistake it for the middle ages no matter how much the habsburgs liked to pretend so (laughs) that's kind of um i I think that the french revolution and the attendant kerfuffle is a pretty good demarcation point but ultimately things like that are nice thematic chapter headings for historians who are trying to tell an emotionally impactful story rather than anything that's arbitrary, that's like objectively true there wasn't there wasn't any peasant at the storming of the bastille going this is so great we're ending the middle ages
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man all right ben so i think we're gonna start wrapping up here as we've talked about these different time periods you know even though they can feel dramatically different it's sort of evident that you believe that they're all powerfully relevant to the contemporary world in some way yes now no historic parallel is perfect but there are lessons there that people can draw from the wars of the reformation that could constructively be applied to our contemporary situation
1: I agree with that statement
0: Would you care to elaborate on what you think?
1: Okay, At the risk of coming off as there's a lot of risks that I could come off as here, but let me just say it and then I'll say what I'm, I'm not trying to say the, the situation going ongoing in the Middle East and in, in North America to a certain extent um, with the rise of the Christian right as well He
0: just jumped right in. I
1: mean, one of the big things that comes out of the the 30 Years' War is um, people are forced to accept a separation between church and state and some level of toleration because if they don't, then their neighbor next door, you know, if I'm a Catholic king and I'm persecuting the Protestants, the Protestant king next door is just going to, like, tap me on the shoulder and be like, do you really want to start this again? You know... Um, so a certain level of decorum was enforced within Christianity through sort of mutually assured destruction, if you will. Um, and I think we've all been much better for it. Uh, that said, um, you know, there's a lot of people who say what I just say and go, those Muslims could learn a thing or two from studying our history. And that's not what I'm trying to say although there isn't you know learning about other people's history is useful uh us studying islamic history is useful um i think the other part of the the story of the the wars of the protestant reformation is how much of it was very political and it not theological and so much of it was about you know the constitution of the holy roman empire all just sort of dressed up, you know, obscured in this, like, garb of theological issues. And I think that that also is a really important thing to recognize when dealing with things like the Middle East, that we can get distracted by people who live different lives from us, people who have a different religion from us, uh, who have a different worldview, that Obscures the fact that there's politics going on, even in this, even in this situation where people are talking about God and how their God is better or whatever. There's politics going on under the surface, and um, you know, even with an organization like ISIS, there's there's politics going on there, and we would all do well to recognize the fact that we're all Homo Sapiens sapiens here, and that to really understand what's going on. We can't just dismiss people as, you know, ignorant or deluded. Uh, We need to understand what's actually motivating them, even if they don't necessarily understand it themselves, which is, you know, so often the case. I'm I'm sure I don't understand how I do half the things I do. So that's sort of, I guess, my take. And I will never, ever bring any of that into the show. <laughs> I don't I really try and avoid the soapbox. Uh it's not why people tune in. People can take away their own lessons. I'm trying to just present a good story.
0: And you very much do. So, Ben, we thank you very much for joining me today on the exchange and uh thank you very much for, you know, taking the time to, to produce this podcast that that really is so edifying and so entertaining.
1: Well, thanks very much. I I hope uh, people tune in and enjoy
0: it. Uh, you want to tell them where they can find it and we'll give some plugs? Sure, yeah.
1: Well, so it, it's Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. It's on iTunes. Um, it's wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com uh, That's the show website. And if you just search for Wittenberg to Westphalia on Facebook, um, that's... Uh, that's probably the best way to keep in touch with me in, in terms of uh, what's going on with the show. Um, although I did forget to update for the last show, <laughs> but uh, yeah.
0: So that's uh, that's that's all my plugs, I guess. Okay, great. Well, Ben, thanks again for coming by, and uh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. <laughs> okay, folks, that's all for today. If you like what you heard, why not give the Agora Podcast Network's original content a review on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher you're using. And remember, you can also follow Agora on Facebook or Twitter and be part of the thoughtful community we're trying to build on social media. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope to talk to you again soon.